episode 128 of Nothing to Say, the fans podcast. Um, Sam, thanks for doing last episode. I had some stuff that I had to take care of. And Andrew, thank you for being a guest on the show. I'm sorry I couldn't be there, but I watched a little bit of it and it was it was fun to listen to. So I'm glad you guys were able to uh, pull that off. Yeah, I appreciate that. I think Andrew was a great host, um, like all the all. The- was a great guest, like all the guests that we've had on. It's just freaked me out because you weren't there. He was, it was like a co-host, a little substitute ghost, and like went to the bullpen, brought Andrew in. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, Andrew, thank you again if you're watching for coming on. We really do appreciate it, and hopefully the next time you come on, um, I'll be there so we can t- t- chat. Maybe so, I'll be gone that time. Yeah, so exactly. And, yeah, he and I just, and then we'll compare. We'll see which one was better. We'll see which one was better. All right. So we are trying to do some new things here on the show. We've been we've been pretty much doing this show for what what is it now? Almost almost three years. It's been a long time. Uh so we're just trying to uh try to work in some new stuff, maybe do a little bit of a new format. So we're te- doing a test run today. Hopefully you guys like it. And uh just know that we're gonna be maybe tweaking some things uh coming up in the future. Uh, first thing that we need to start with, and it is it is an unfortunate place to start, but it is a story that we cannot not cover, and it is the unfortunate passing of quarterback Dwayne Haskins. I'm on ESPN right now, and I'll just read you the opening two paragraphs. It says, Pittsburgh Steelers quarterback Dwayne Haskins died earlier Saturday morning after he was struck by a dump truck while he was walk while he was walking on a South Florida highway. Haskins was 24 years old. He was pronounced dead at the scene. So that news came out of nowhere earlier in well earlier last week I should say and it was just it was awful to hear. I mean, when anything like that happens regardless of how somebody passes away, it's always it's never easy to take and it's never easy to, to read about um, or, or to hear. And, you know, you know, from our standpoint, again, you know, just, we have to cover it because one, it more than anything else, it's the most important thing that happened in the world of sports. So uh, we need to do our job covering it here and, you know, condolences to the Haskins family and his wife. Um, it's just an awful set of circumstances. Yeah, I think it, it says a lot that that's the biggest news out of the weekend because this is we're talking about something that transcends sports. It's someone losing their life unexpectedly, and um, it's just a complete tragedy. It, think about how young he was and how much life he had moving forward, but also the people that he had in his life that are now struck by that news and that incident and are changed forever from the events that happened on Saturday. It's completely awful. It you can't even we can't even put ourselves in that scenario of we didn't know him we knew him of what he did on the field and that is completely completely uh like unimportant to what is going on this is a human being that lives and breathes and impacts people's lives every single day and he's he's gone and it's it's to me when i saw that um in the morning because i saw that uh, saturday morning um I was like, oh my God, like this is, I don't know him at all, but this is completely tragic. I think maybe because it's, he's close to our age, like he's only a year older than us. And it's just, it caught me a little bit off guard of like, holy cow, he is 24. 
Like that is yeah, not it's, old at all. It's an unfortunate. It's an unfortunate reminder that that stuff happens, and it's you can't predict it, and you can't expect it. But you know, it's it's just one of those things that you know was out of anybody's control, and um, yeah, well, at least as far as we know. But um, yeah, I mean, I I the only the only real words that I can put that I can put to this is that it's just it's exceptionally unfortunate and very upsetting and just another reminder that it it can happen and we're you know we're all human and unfortunately uh for the people in his life you know somebody lost a husband and somebody lost their son and I don't know if he had any kids but if he did then somebody lost their father and it impacts a lot of people so it's much more important than anything we're going to cover on this episode. It's much more important than anything that happened in sports earlier in the week or that's going to happen upcoming. So again, our condolences to the Haskin family. We wanted to lead our show with that because it is definitely the most important thing, as we've said uh, over the past week. So um, with that, again, when you talk about stuff like that, it's never easy to transition off of it. So We'll put a cap on that just by saying, again, our condolences to the Haskin family. And, yeah, we we hope you all find some comfort uh, some way in, uh, yeah, in, this, uh, in this tragic time. So, um, so again, never easy to trans- transition off of that, but we do have to move on. But we wanted to make sure that was the first and foremost thing that we led our show with. So, next, <clears throat> the... Biggest sporting event that happened last week was the Masters tournament. Now, I was busy at work. I couldn't spend a lot of time watching the Masters, uh, but Sam fortunately did. So, Sam, if you could give us a little bit of a a recap of Augusta and what took place there. Yeah, I hope I can recap a four-day event pretty quickly. But I think in short, it was this Masters was playing extremely tough. I think a lot tougher than we've seen in years past uh, due to weather conditions and the wind played a huge factor this year, uh, just how much it was, it was so volatile and how much it changed at different ways, different gusts coming in and out. But I think the biggest stories coming in was definitely Tiger. I can't remember if we talked about it uh, before. We did not. Yeah, we did it, but he eventually, he played, played a, like amazing first round really being one under par with limping around noticeably different, but his swing throughout the week looked really good. I mean, he still got that same swing, that same speed in that swing and still drives the ball still hitting really well. It was just a little things where you could see a guy that hasn't played tournament level golf in 500 days really kind of cut up to him. It was just the, like the uh, the touch stuff, the wedge play, the short game, the putting, different things like that really caught up with them. But it's awesome to see him walk around for four days, really compete uh, as best as he could, really. And that's the big awesome thing. But we had all the best golfers in the world at this tournament, and they all struggled really at different times, except for one guy. And that was the guy that ended up winning and Scotty Scheffler. And this guy has been had one heck of a year I think this is his fourth win this year already he's the world number one just recently the world number one wins his first major one um, the WGC in I think it was like Mexico something like that 
but he's won a bunch of tournaments this year, played super well. He's played super well in years past. He's really young, I think only like 25, 26. And yeah, I mean, he played phenomenal in a weekend where it seemed like all the best players were befuddled. One last thing, awesome to see uh, Roy McIlroy have one of the best rounds of golf I think that Masters has ever seen in that final round where he shot under, yeah. a final round 64, had two chip-in birdies, had that amazing eagle. It just, when you see Rory play like that, you can't help but think, why can't he do this every single time he goes out? Because he makes it look so easy. The dude's got like every, every golfer says that. <laughs> he's got every shot in the <laughs> imaginable, but he is so good. Like prime Rory could be could go toe to toe with everyone. Really, it's just crazy. Like he can't. It it just watching him do that was like, man, why why did you have to shoot two over the first two rounds? Like if he was just under par he would have won this tournament it's just well, i mean if i it. was under par every round i played i would have been in the tournament <laughs> yeah but you don't have that skill like he has that skill. He's won majors before it's just how do you go from 73 73 71 and then boom 64 how does that work how does that make any sense he touched on that a little bit that the wins were a little easier like they were a little more manageable that final day but it's it's crazy to me that a that one golfer can have success in awful conditions and another can be absolutely befuddled. Like that's just, it's kind of crazy to me. Well, so the question that I wanted that I had for you on this is the, so last year we had um, Matsuyama. He won the masters. And then the year before that it was DJ, right? Um, So DJ is probably the most well-known out of both of them. I mean, out of the uh, three of them, I should say, out of uh, those three, you yeah, think? Is that definitely. fair to say? Definitely. I think that's, that's fair to say. That's due to him being world number one for a long time. He, right, he's and 35. he's 37. I looked, he's 37, oh, he? I checked it. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, yeah, so he's obviously the most famous out of the three, though. So, out of the three of them. So, I'd say the past two years, the Masters have had two golfers who, I'm sure if you pay attention to the sport, heavily you'd know who Matsuyama is and you would know who Scotty uh Scheffler is but I mean it's one of those things where in your opinion do you think it's better for the Masters to have somebody like DJ win or somebody like Matsuyama and Scotty to win because I feel like I could hear the argument for both because the previous year before DJ was Tiger now Tiger is bigger than anybody so it, it wouldn't matter but then they had DJ so that was a big game golfer and then the following two years they've had not as not two golfers who aren't as well known. So I feel like you can make the argument for both. Like, yeah, you have this star power draw, but then conversely for that, for Scotty and Matsuyama, you have two people who maybe are rooting for them because they're the underdog. And then again, they're both young. Matsuyama's 30 and Scotty's 25. So what do you think is better for the Masters and even the PGA? Yeah, it's tough. Nothing will be, nothing will eclipse Tiger winning a major, especially. No, we, I mean, he'd be in a separate yeah, yeah. category. So. No, no, totally. But even DJ, I feel like DJ to mainstream is pretty, pretty obscure of a name. Like he's not going to jump out at you, but all golfers should know who Justin Johnson is. I mean, he's been yes. so prominent in the sport for so long now. Uh, Matsuyama, like you said, he's been there a little longer for sure than Scheffler. I think Scheffler turned pro maybe three four years ago like it hasn't been super long 
but Matsuyama has been contending for a long time. I think that Matsuyama win was so unique in how it was the first, it was, he was the first Asian born to win at the Masters, I think. I think they would want, I think it's all about the story is really what it is. I think it's a case-by-case basis. I think what Matsuyama showed with his breakout performance is his ability to capture a whole culture, a whole part of the country that golf really has been able to tap like tap into, but this like magnetize that with and really maximize that with his ability to connect to Japan, especially and other Asian countries and really bring in that viewership as well to the sport of golf with him winning that masters in such a way. Uh, Scheffler, hopefully this is a breakout into a great career. That's the only thing that the Masters really can hope for. Like, it's not a one-and-done thing. But I think those two things, like, those two instances are, like, what the best-case scenario for the Masters in golf going forward is that there's these case-by-case stories for these guys that aren't the big names that really draw in and create that atmosphere. I agree. I think I think stories like Matsuyama uh, is just as cool as well. Maybe the circumstances surrounding Tiger's win were a little bit different, but maybe that makes it. I don't know. I, it's hard to judge what is more intriguing, but the way that Matsuyama was sort of able to represent his entire country in the Masters that was really cool. Um, I I think for golf, I think it's different because it's not a team sport, and there are so many golfers as opposed to there only being like 30, 32 NBA and NFL teams. And, um, you know, same thing with the MLB with golfers. There's so many. So for somebody to get a win in the masters, some on, on a stage that, that, that is that big, I almost think that is, I think that's cooler than having somebody like, I don't know, Lori win. Not to say that that isn't interesting and not to say that isn't cool, but, if I'm just giving my opinion, that's just kind of – and maybe maybe if you're more of a hardcore golf fan, that's not what you want. But as sort of somebody who's more casual like myself, I, I don't know. I, it's kind of what I like to see. So. Yeah, it's an interesting thought. I think the Matsuyama win would almost be more impactful in growing the game than if Rory were to complete that career Grand Slam and win a Masters because golfers, I think, would love to see that. But right. – people that aren't in tune with the sport would it just be like a mainstream like it'd be just the norm a a white golfer winning at the masters and it's sort of elitist almost it uh separates people from really being able to relate to the sport but with Matsuyama winning it's like oh my god like that's crazy like that almost drives the sport a little more mainstream in a way well it was I mean, I'm sure it was an interesting tournament. I really wish I could have watched it. I, I feel like I'm whenever the Masters comes around every year, I feel like I'm always busy. I know I know. last year I was at drill, so mm-hmm. I wasn't able to watch it. So, And the Tiger thing, I, same sort of thing. And even DJ the year before that, I feel like I'm always busy on Masters weekend. It's unfortunate. Um, um, Jason, one more thing, because I know mm-hmm. we're both golfers, right? And I think it was really interesting seeing the best players in the world hit a shot exactly how they wanted to, but midair, they see the ball heading towards the water. Like, what the heck? No ball. Yeah. No. Like that happened a couple times to Hovland, a couple times to Spieth. 
And it made me feel so relatable to them. <laughs> it's like, I've yeah. definitely seen my ball head straight for nothing but the water. And it's like, the oh, only, no. the only difference is that elements were pushing the ball that way. Whereas it was just my club and my force. <laughs> so it was like, well, at least I have an explanation as to why this is happening. And then for like my shot, it's like, I don't really know why, why it's doing it. <laughs> I can't really fix it. <laughs> um, and then to go back to, to loop it all the way back to the very first point that you made in the very beginning, I'll hit a good shot and go, why can't I do that all the time? <laughs> Just like that. So, well, Masters weekend is over, but congratulations to Scotty on the Masters win. I know he's a big fan of the show, so. A open invitation to Sky Scheffler if he wants to come on. And if you want to come win. on the show, I know that winning the Masters was like probably an eleven or so million dollar payout or anything like that, but I can offer you a friendly hello and some street time. So, all right. Um, so moving on. So one of the things that we wanted to do more frequently that we haven't done as much on our show is just having like our own stories, our own ideas, maybe some, I mean, we always give our own thoughts, but sort of writing, you know, it is our show. So doing more stuff that is in line with our thinking in our show. And I was sitting there and I was bouncing back and forth between certain ideas. I had a, I had a story that I wanted to write about, you know, this is maybe a sneak peek at what's coming in the future, but I had one that I was going to make a case for why the MVP should be changed to the MOP. So it shouldn't be called the most valuable player. It should be the most outstanding player. Um, I had one that I was going to write about that was going to be titled why I don't blame LeBron James for the Lakers uh, not making the playoffs this year. Um, However, one of the things that I thought would be interesting is relating it to the biggest sporting event that happened this weekend, which was the Masters. And the biggest storyline coming into the Masters was Tiger Woods and him coming back from injury and how unlikely that was. So I did some research and I compiled my top 10 list of players who have come back from injury. So it is the best, it is the top 10 list for the athletes who have had, and this is taking into account the injury what they did after the injury and pretty much their career as a whole following the injury plus the severity of the injury. So it is the, it's, it's a hard list to try to describe, but you'll see what I mean in a second. Um, so it is just 10 great stories ranked about players who got injured and who came back. So Sam has not seen this list. That's part of this where he's reacting to it as we go. And I want your opinion on the list when we are done. So I put an honorable mention in here for those of you that know sports history. This happened in 1985. This was Ronnie Lott. So honorable mention for Ronnie Lott. During the final game of the 1985 season, Lott injured his left pinky when tackling the Dallas Cowboys running back. Now his pinky got injured during that play. It required surgery and eight weeks of recovery. Now, with the playoffs coming up, he had a choice. Either get the surgery or do what he did. Instead of having an invasive surgery and rehab, Lott decided to amputate his pinky. Doing so allowed him to participate in the 1985 playoffs. And sure sure enough, Lott was out there next week against the New York Giants. So dude amputated his pinky and said, I'm coming back next week. Here we go. 
didn't miss a week. So this that is honorable a, mention. A bad 49er fan of me, but did they end up winning the Super Bowl that year? Nope, they did not. They lost that week. <laughs> so it was all for nothing. <laughs> all right, so yes, honorable mention was Ronnie Lott. Number 10, we have 2011, Peyton Manning. Peyton Manning is number 10 on this list. So in May 2011, Manning checked into Northwestern Memorial Hospital in Chicago for surgery on a herniated disc, a tear in the protective ring in his neck that had undermined his performance after 14 seasons with the Indianapolis Colts. The surgeon explained that the disc had been pressing on a nerve, and it would take some time for the irritation to subside and for the nerve and muscle to come back to his old form. <clears throat> now, in his next season, coming back from the injury, Peyton Manning threw for 4,659 yards, 37 touchdowns, and just 11 interceptions. And the following year, in 2013, he threw for – he had the, his big historic season, 5,477 5, yards and 55 touchdowns. So mm-hmm. that one right there, just taking into account the injury and also taking into account what he did in the following two seasons, that's why he earned a number two spot on the list. Number nine, those of you who watch baseball will know definitely what a Tommy John surgery is, but the first surgery was actually performed in 1947 on pitcher Tommy John. So the procedure was first performed by Dr. Frank Job on Dodgers pitcher Tommy John in September 1974. So taking a tendon from John's wrist, Job drilled holes into John's ulna and humerus bones and grafted the tendon in a basic figure eight design held into place by anchors. Job said in 2013 that he gave the procedure about a one in 100 chance of working at the time. <clears throat> so Tommy John, that surgery happened in 1974. He returned to the big leagues in April of 1976. In 1976, he returned and finished the season with a 10 and 10 record, surprising many who thought his career was over. And the following season, he proved that the surgery was undeniably successful, finishing with a 20 and 7 record, 2.7 ERA, and finished second in the AL Cy Young Award voting. The Dodgers also made it to the World Series. He pitched until he was 46 years old in 1989. He won 164 games after surgery. 40 more than he had won before the injury and finished his 26th year career with a record of 288 and 231. So he pitched for 14 more seasons after the surgery. It's better. It sounds like it. Yeah. Yeah. An absolutely crazy story in the originator of the Tommy John surgery. What do you know? All right. So number eight was 2011 Adrian Peterson. For those of you who are alive to remember that, uh, who are alive to remember that season, he tore his ACL and MCL in his left knee December 24th, 2011, a game, in a game against the Redskins. Here's the thing. Instead of being out for this extended time, maybe even ending his career, 10 months after his surgery, he was back. And even more remarkable, in 2012, He ran for 2,097 yards, averaging six yards per carry with 12 touchdowns, had a Pro Bowl performance, and is one of the best statistical seasons for a running back in NFL history. So that was Adrian Peterson coming back from his injury and just destroying the league. 
just carrying people, dragging. Oh them. yeah, I re- I remember that. I remember that season. That was that was he was on another level. So number seven, again going back to baseball. For those of you who know your baseball history, this is the bloody sock game. This is Kurt Schilling. This is Kurt okay. Schilling at number seven. So. Here's a quote. Schilling was injured in game one of 2004 AL Championship Series against New York. Team doctor stitched a tendon in his right ankle to keep it from flopping around, and he returned to lead the Red Sox to a, to a win in game six to tie the series at 3-3. Three to three. The Red Sox went on to win that series and won the World Series for the first title since 1918. And Schilling had a quote for anybody who wanted to know what it was like to play. He said, if you have the guts, grab an orthopedic surgeon, have them suture your ankle, skin down to the tissue, covering the bone in your ankle and joint, then walk around for four hours. After that, go find a mound, throw 100 or so pitches, run over, cover first a few times. When you're done, check to see if your ankle bleeds. So that was his quote about his injury. That is a very famous game in baseball history. The reason why I put him at seven is because he actually played through that injury. I give him the nod for doing that. I also give Tiger Woods in 2008 the nod for playing through injuries. So he came into the 2008 U.S. Open after severing a double stress fracture in his left tibia. He played anyway. Woods gritted his teeth through five days of golf and 91 holes, and he won. He won playing on a double stress fracture in his left tibia and played anyway in 2008. That was one of the golf's most it's just a very famous moment in golf history. So that was my first five. Got any argument with the uh, order? We had Peyton Manning at 10, Tommy John at 9, Adrian Peterson at 8, Kurt Schilling at 7, and Tiger at 6. Yeah, I was a little surprised by uh, by Kurt being on there. I couldn't remember what injury he had. Uh, Tommy John's a little interesting, I guess, uh, because that – that injury used to knock guys out of their careers. And then after him, it was almost like there's a chance, but now it's like guys come back from Tommy John surgery all the time. Part of the reason why you're not able to be pitcher until you have Tommy John surgery pretty much. Yeah. Part of the reason why I put him uh, on the list um, was because think about the medical technology that was around at that time. I totally get it. Yeah. Um, It's just, it's just like, like even the ACL now, isn't nearly as damaging not as what I think when Adrian Peterson, which I would never want an ACL tear, no. but it's definitely not like career ending anymore. Yeah, no, for sure. For sure. Uh, <clears throat> so those five stories, <clears throat> those five injuries are, I mean, <clears throat> one tough to play through, but two just tough to have and recover from anyway. The top mm-hmm. five, we're getting into the heavy hitters. So this one, somebody I had never heard of, happened way before our time this was 1964 bobby bond all right let me pause for dramatic i have to cut that one out too (laughs) so this was bobby bond in 1964 with 10 minutes left in the sixth game of the 1964 finals between the maple leaves and the detroit red wings this is hockey Bobby Bond fearlessly sacrificed his body, sliding down on the ice to block a shot. The heavy shot bounced off his foot at exactly the worst spot. It broke a bone in Bond's ankle. He was carried away on a stretcher, and it should have put his season to an end. But 
in one of the most famous moments in hockey history, Bond returned to the lineup that very same game. The game had gone into overtime, and Bond refused to go to the hospital. Instead, he was given painkillers and had his ankle taped tightly and returned for extra period of play. Just a couple minutes into overtime, Bond ended up scoring a goal on that broken uh, ankle. It deflected off a Detroit defenseman, Bill Gatsby, and it went into the net, and that forced Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Finals. And instead of missing Game 7, he ended up playing in Game 7 as well, and they won the championship. So part of the reason why I put Bobby Bond in that list at number 5 is because if you think about how physical hockey is, and you think about what you have to do over the course of a hockey game with a shattered ankle, that's insane. Skating around on the ice like that, and then also to score the goal to send you into the uh, Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Finals, got to put him in there. Yeah, you got to almost critique the coaching staff. You don't have anyone, like a healthy player, that might be better <laughs> to be put in than a guy that has a shattered ankle? Right. Well, <clears throat> the next one on the list might might surprise you. I had a tough time putting him this low. But this happened most recent out of any of the ones. This is Alex Smith in 2018. Put him number four on the list. We all know the story. Alex Smith had a devastating leg injury. He ended up having 16 or 17 surgeries. Got an infection, almost lost his life, almost had his leg amputated. This happened. His injury happened November 18th, 2018. And then almost two years to the day, after that injury and on November 15th, 2020 Smith attempted 55 passes in a game against the lions, completing 36 of those for 390 yards. They ended up losing that game, but that was a career high in both of those areas. And then a week later, he ended up getting a win um, against Cincinnati. So we all know the story about Alex Smith, the, where they took muscle from other parts of his body to totally regraft his leg 16, 17 surgeries, almost lost his life. Again, almost had his leg amputated. It was a story of epic proportions. And if the NFL doesn't name the comeback player of the year award after Alex Smith, they're really doing themselves a disservice. Yeah, no question. I watching that documentary that they put about put out about his uh, his injury and his comeback. I mean, it's just remarkable. Again, you got to ask. He didn't need to play football again, like what was driving him to really put in that work and put in that time and effort to get back on that field. And then it came, it came through. They didn't end up winning a championship or they might've made the playoffs. I don't think they made the playoffs, but still it was just amazing that he even got out there. For sure. Now that injury again was extremely significant in its own right. But another one happened in 1949, and this happened to Ben Hogan, who's mm-hmm. a golfer. So I think, Sam, you'll know this one. So he was hit by a Greyhound bus head-on. The car crash caused the car engine to ram straight into the driver's seat, which Hogan evaded because he dove to protect his wife. So it took over an hour to get Hogan out of the wreck and even longer for the medics to arrive on scene. He suffered. This is why I put him at three. This is why I put him above Alex Smith. He suffered a broken collarbone, broken rib, internal bleeding, double double fractured pelvis, head abrasions, a broken ankle, and contusions to the left leg. 
Doctors wondered if Hogan would ever walk again, if he even survived. And that happened in 1949 with all of those injuries. During the 1950s, he won 11 times, including six majors. And in 1953, four years after the accident, he had what many have called the greatest season of all time, winning three majors and being named Male Athlete of the Year by the Associated Press. He ended up winning nine majors after that injury. Yeah, they brought that up a lot um, during this whole Tiger comeback. Yep. The fact that Ben Hogan did it, did it so why can't Tiger do it? Yeah, and Ben Hogan's, I mean, similar story to Tiger, car crash, devastating injuries. Ben Hogan yeah. was wrecked, <laughs> wrecked. Um, mm-hmm. So, but I couldn't, I couldn't put him above the 1996 performance by Carrie Strug in the Olympics. Everybody, everybody knows what this is. So this is the, so the brief synopsis of it is the gymnast had one of the most legendary performances ever in the Olympic games while competing for the United States in 1996. <clears throat> they were gunning for a gold medal. Strube landed awkwardly for her first vault attempt and tore ligaments in her ankle. Now for the team to win the gold, Strube needed to make another attempt on the vault. And even with the torn ligaments stick the landing. After getting a pep coach from her talk, Strude pulled off the unbelievable feat. Do you, want to re- helped- do you want to retry that real quick? Why? You said a, a pep coach from her talk. I did? Yeah. Okay. All right, I'll go back. And I couldn't put Ben Hogan above Carrie Strug in 1996. Everybody knows this one. So she was a gymnast for the United States. She did her first vault attempt, and she ended up tearing ligaments in her ankle. And for the team to win gold, Strug needed to make another attempt on the vault. And even with the torn ligaments, she needed to stick the landing. And after getting a pep talk from her coach, Strug pulled off the unbelievable feat, and she helped the United States win gold. She did the vault during the torn ligaments, landed it. Not only did she land it, but, I mean, she and didn't move a muscle. It was a legendary performance, and it allowed the United States to win gold. And it was just one of the most gutsiest performances you will ever see in a sporting event. It's not number one. But it is not number one. Now, number one is another one that everybody will know, but I just couldn't do it. I couldn't put anybody above Bethany Hamilton in 2003 when she was 13 years old. She, for those of you that don't know, was the surfer who got her arm bitten off by a shark. Had a bunch of movies made about her, uh, had a bunch of documentaries, but just a story. She was 13 years old, and just 26 days after her attack, Hamilton returned to the water and entered her first major competition on January 10, 2004. Throughout her career, she competed in events in the United States and other countries. She placed first in many events, establishing herself as one of the best surfers in the world. In 2012, she became the first female surfer to surf in the Rip curl cup so i had to put bethany out there at number one because first of all she was 13 at the time she was younger than anybody on this list and to reteach herself how to surf with one arm in 26 days enough to go out and compete in a major competition i just i can't think of i can't think of any better injury comeback story than that yeah, I mean, I definitely forgot about that one. I think this opens up a definitely 
different realm realm into uh, like Special Olympics can can uh, participants different things like that like amputees of different natures of like that in the special olympics um i guess it completely disqualifies everything because she was the only one to lose a limb you know you (laughs) can't really can't really compare i yeah it's tough because i can't really judge this list because it's not like you can say one injury is like no 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 but i just in terms of in terms of the stories what do you think yeah, I think the only way I could judge it is based off of how well they did, um, like how great they were post-injury. But then you also got to take into account like how significant, because an ACL tear is different than someone losing an arm. Everybody everybody has different criteria for how they would judge these. Um, you don't necessarily have to judge them. It took me a while to rack my brain to figure out what order I was going to put them in. Mm-hmm. Part of the justification for putting people where they were is, one, taking into account if you had the injury – and then you had time to rehab and come back versus if you played with the injury. And I think everybody, everybody pretty much in the top five, minus Alex Smith um, and Ben Hogan. But the reason why I put them in there is because their injuries were so severe. Um, and Ben Hogan, the thing that cancels out him not necessarily playing immediately after those injuries is the fact that the severity of his injuries were, were pretty bad. So I do have to say that I used a bunch of different sources for this list, MLB.com, Sports Casting, Bleacher Report, um, Cronkite News, never heard of them, but they <laughs> they gave me they gave me some really good information. Men's Journal, um, the greatest hockey legend.com, Sporting News, the Washington Post, and ESPN. So those were all my stories. I mean, all my sources for that list. I hope you all enjoyed that list. It was a little bit different. Let me know in the comments what you guys thought of that list maybe there's a injury that you thought i should have put on there that i didn't there were certainly plenty i'll read it off one more time peyton manning was number 10 tommy john nine adrian peterson eight kirk Schilling seven tiger woods in 2008 six bobby bond 1964 at number five alex smith in 2018 at number four um ben hogan at number three carrie strube at number two, and Bethany Hamilton at number one. So that was my list. I hope you all enjoyed that story, and hopefully we're going to be bringing you more stuff like that in the future. So the last thing that we have to cover here, just a very short uh, synopsis of it because nothing's really happened with it yet, is the NBA playoffs. The NBA playoffs are going to be starting this week, and we're going to be all over it once they officially start. But – your 4-5 matchup in the West is the Mavericks versus Utah. Number three is Golden State versus Denver. Uh, and Denver six. Your 4-5 matchup and your 3-6 matchup in the East is a 76ers versus Toronto. That's 4-5. And then 3-6 is the Bucks versus the Bulls. On the Western Conference side, your 9-10 and 10 matchups are the Pelicans and the Spurs. 7-8 and eight is the Timberwolves and the Clippers. And then your 9-8 matchup on the East is Atlanta and the Hornets, and 7-8 is Brooklyn and Cleveland. So those are your matchups, and the one seeds for both sides, the Suns are the one seed, Miami Heat are the one seed, number two seed in the East is Boston, and the number two seed in the West is Memphis. So a lot of good games to look forward to. Sam, do you have any early sort of predictions for what you think is going to shake out? No, I'm super – because I haven't been super invested into the NBA this year, I'm very interested to see 
how the Sixers play, how the Bucks play. Uh, Miami kind of a sneaky dark horse at the one seed, which is kind of a oxymoron to say, but it's just, I'm very interested to see if they can keep it up and keep up that success. Yeah, and Boston came on towards the end of the year. I mean, if we remember, they started off horribly and then just rattled off like 20-something straight wins, and they propelled themselves up into the number two spot. I know a lot of people are really interested to see what Brooklyn is going to do, how they're mm-hmm. going to shake out. I know the 76ers, that'll be – I agree with you. That'll be interesting to see how that plays out with Embiid and Harden because initially it seemed like that was a match made in heaven, and then as of recently it hasn't been all that great. So yeah. I think in the West, for me, I'm really curious about Memphis. I mean, Memphis has been a surprise team all year, and it'll be really cool to see them – see how far they can take this. See, you know, I mean, Phoenix I think so far has been clear – that they were the number one team in the league for pretty much the whole year. And Golden State, I mean, when they were healthy, were, was giving them a run for their money, but it's been Phoenix pretty much all year. So it'll be interesting to see if Memphis and Phoenix do make it to the uh, the conference championship game, whether Memphis is going to just take this magical run all the way or if, uh, or if they get bounced early. So we'll see. I'm really curious to see what happens to Memphis. So. Yeah, I just, I just, I don't even want to make any predictions. I just want to go along for the ride, really. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So 2020 NBA playoffs are here. They're starting this week. We hope you all enjoy the basketball and uh, we hope you all enjoy the show. <laughs> um, it was a uh, little, little, a uh, little shorter than normal, but hopefully, uh, again, hopefully you guys like the new format. Uh, we're trying to get the information quick and succinct and maybe add some of our own stories in it as well so thank you all so much for listening to episode 128 have a wonderful week and we will see you all next week thanks everyone